Hey, 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 it's me, Katie here. Grab a notebook, add a cuppa, and join me in the sociology staff room. Hello, good morning, good afternoon. Welcome to the sociology staff room. I'm Katie Tyler, and we've got a guest today, Andrew Jones, who is a teacher, assistant head, uh, principal, um, someone that can talk to us about sociology and the classics. So first of all, I want to just say thank you for coming on uh, today onto the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, as I said in the brief interruption, we're going to talk about teaching the classics within sociology. Before we get to that, is tell me a little bit about yourself and and what brings you to the world of sociology. I think I'm I'm teaching sociology. It's, it's it's an interesting one. I kind of went to school. I didn't do very well at school. I left school with two GCSEs. Um, I went to an FE college not knowing what I was going to do. All of my friends were doing A-levels, and for some reason, the FE college let me do a load of GCSEs and the first year of an A-level. So this was back in 1995, and I don't think anyone would do this anymore. And I had this brilliant teacher, uh, Mr. Strange, um, who did do the odd thing that could be kind of similar or eponymous with his name in a way. Um, He was really engaging. Uh, He made pots. He went on, I think it was ITN News, because he built a uh, Meccano robot that was kind of um, saying down with Margaret Thatcher and things like that. But he was a really inspiring teacher, a really fantastic teacher. Um, Loved the kind of theoretical side and would get very excited about things like Irving Goffman um, in our lessons. So that's how I came to sociology. Um, Mr. Strange also taught me politics, and that's what I did in my degrees. Um, I went off and did a degree in international relations, then theory and method, which some people might have found dry as a master's degree. I thought that was fantastic. Um, Then I ended up teaching in Thailand, came back, taught religious education, and then in my second school was told that I was teaching sociology um, and realised that, no, this is fantastic, what an opportunity, and I've been doing that now for, I think that's 12 years ago, I've been so and i think it's such a great subject it's a really really good subject um completely biased have a major rivalry with the government and politics teachers in the school um really i think this is the subject that properly gets to grips with how society works and its theoretical side well there we go you've got a biased audience i'm smiling from ear to ear uh hearing those words that that is i mean it is a brilliant subject i think um, I'm going to talk about the classics, but I think because of the contemporary nature of it, I think it, it, you can, like you said, get your teeth really into it. It's interesting because you've sort of had that sort of writing past in education of lots of different subjects. And it seems to be a common theme from the people we've spoken to on the podcast. that They've either started off as PE teachers and have come through it that way, or psychology, which seems to be more common, or history teachers. But then, have, like you said, fallen in love with the subject and actually really, really enjoy it. Um, also, interestingly, is that the teachers have this common thread of what's got them into sociology. It's, it's this dynamic teacher, which really makes me think about something separate from what we're talking about today, but the importance of that teacher-student relationship and how that harvests uh, a thirst for knowledge and a thirst for, not, for learning, irrespective of the content that needs to be delivered. And um, yeah, and it just seems to be this common thread every time I speak to someone that's, you know, talking about sociology and their teaching and what's brought them there is this dynamic teacher that's, I mean, it's quite interesting, yours is called Mr. Strange. Um, but yeah, those sort of personalities, let's just say that. So, um, so yeah, classics. 
I mean, I've gone and said, oh, we're going to talk about the classics, but what do you understand? What are you sort of classifying as the classics? Is it where my head's thinking it's your classical Marxist, functionist, interactionist, that sort of, that little group, the sort of founding fathers, the sociologists with beards, basically. <laughs> I definitely, I think you start with those. So Durkheim, uh, Weber, Marx. I think also as well, though, that there's kind of more modern classics, a bit like you get literature and you get your modern classics books with Penguin and things. I would probably include in that Anne Oakley. Um, I definitely include Irving Goffman, who's probably a favourite of mine, Paul uh, Willis, um, Bowles and Gintis, uh, Chubb and Moe. Um, I'd even say Charles Murray as well. Um, all of these things that I think when I was studying in the 1990s are still there in the textbooks. So they might not necessarily be um, sociologists from uh, the 19th century, but they are those that I think have stood the test of time. And you couldn't really have an A-level syllabus without referencing them. So despite the fact that we do need kind of more contemporary studies, and I think one of the weaknesses perhaps in sociology is how do we get more kind of uh, cutting edge research from academia into our teaching, particularly because teachers are busy, they're doing all these other things. But I think there are those people that go back to um, doing studies um, in the 80s and 90s. Stuart Hall is another example of someone I think we could say is classic. Um, Stan Cohen, Albert Cohen, um, and of course I'd say even Jermaine Greer, um, not quite a sociologist, but um, always referenced I think by not only the textbooks, but probably most of the teachers who are teaching feminism, radical feminism, etc. Yeah, so you talked about like your classics classics, i.e. I refer to them as the old men with beards, but there's yeah. the founding fathers of sociology, which, you know, whatever textbooks you pick, pick up, whether it's a more, it's a new one or one that you sort of used in the 1990s or those people that studied sociology in the 1970s, they're there. But you've also got these sort of modern classics that have tested the, like, test of time, basically, and they're still there. I sometimes refer to them as the, the value for money sociologists that, you know, to a student always say, you know, you, you, you can always have them in your back pocket because I'm sure you could weave in uh, How Becker somewhere or something like that, or Paul Willis since shoehorn them into a, an essay, um, particularly across lots of different topics. You said that they're so important. Why then? Why are they so important? Why can a, yes, it's important that you said to teach contemporary stuff and that we have to keep abreast of the academia, it's, it's getting that balance between bringing that in. But why is it still so important to teach the classics, do you think? I, I think a, a lot of those ideas coming from those classics are still there. Um, so obviously you, you can see a thread. Paul Willis, for example, uh, talks about Marx. Uh, Bowles and Gintis talk about Marx. Um, and I, I think often people refer back to those studies as well. I'd, I'd say recently I've been doing uh, quite a bit of study around something else I'm looking at in education and I've been reading quite a lot of Stephen Ball and Stephen Ball at the moment seems to be publishing quite a lot of papers on Foucault. Um, Foucault is one of those people that we look at with crime and um, deviance and I'd argue that's kind of a more contemporary classic and you know, Ball still feels it's important to talk about Foucault. Um, although we're going back 20 years, uh, Becky Francis with Power Plays, which I think is a really underestimated book. That's the book where she talks about socialisation, but how it impacts on children's play at school. Um, and I think that's a great one to show the kids. And in that, again, she refers back to Foucault. So I think there are those certain studies out there that have impacted the way people think. Um, I also think there are some that have clearly got resonance in current political thinking. So Charles Murray, for example, um, with 
the bell curve and what he says about the new rabble um, and obviously um, the educated, etc. I think that's still relevant in a lot of our political discourse. Um, so, of course, a contemporary politician might not refer to Charles Murray, but he is certainly there and he's thinking um, on that. So I, d I do think they're still relevant and they permeate everything we do. And I think if we were to read contemporary sociological papers, these people are still definitely being referenced in those. So I think it's important for the pupils to probably, or students rather at A-level, to have that understanding of the significance of these studies, because even if we were to segue in more kind of recent academic papers, they're still going to be referenced um, in those. Funny because I actually had this conversation with the students the other day. So there was, they wanted to know the certain sociologists we studied from contemporary sociology, and then sort of newer names that have been sort of released, uh, depending on what examples you're you're working from, but have released. And there was like, oh, what theory are they? And I said that the complicated thing is they're probably a variety of theories, and they were like you said, reference. They've been influenced, just like how you uh, used a reference to music. And I was like, how like. You know, I'm just go, digressing, but I was just like, how each band, I think we were, I was talking about Harry Styles, that's how I brought it in. They're like, what Harry Styles is doing isn't that new. It was obviously influenced by David Bowie, who was influenced probably by Mick Jagger, I'm not brilliant with my political, uh, my music history. Um, but, you know, everyone's influenced by the next, and there'll be another Harry Styles who will be influenced by all of those as well. Um, and I'm saying it's the same with, with contemporary sociologists, that actually if you read their original texts, they'll refer to, you know, Louise Archer talks about Bordura a lot, um, you know, Foucault as well. And so there's lots of reference to other other sociologists. So I think, like you're saying, it's, they're not in isolation. Um, it's important to, to understand that. So then if you if it is so relevant and it is significant for us to understand, and well, not us, but also for us to really relate to our students, how do I suppose there's two questions I want to ask you. How do we embed that into our teaching without overloading our students? Because obviously we want to keep it contemporary as well. But also how do we engage them? Because you know, I sometimes will use the odd quote that, you know, maybe like I used me the other day for something. Um, how do particularly the older the older classics rather than more contemporary classics as well some of it is a bit like a philosophy rather than a, like a sociology so the way they're writing you're sort of decoding that as well so i suppose my two questions is how do we embed it without overloading the students and then my second part to that question is how do we make it engaging when actually some of it can be a little bit more philosophy and the students find it sometimes hard to hook onto it um they're my two questions to you <laughs> I, I think it's difficult for us as teachers because, first of all, if we're to find like little snippets that are engaging in these books, we have to read them. And I think some of them are dry. Um, social theory, I mean, having done a degree um, in social theory, I was at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, there's only four people doing our course because clearly people didn't want to read social theory. Um, I think one of the, the ways to do it is, one, look at those books that are important, that are mentioned in whether it's the web textbooks, the Chapman textbooks, that are clearly there and clearly examiners need to know. Because I think one of the dangers of bringing in lots of contemporary studies, maybe from 21, 2020 or whatever, is that you do run the danger that some examiners might not be aware of them. And what I've done, I mean, I've got some examples here. I've kind of selected pages 
So when I teach, for example, uh, labelling, I think you can't really teach that without mentioning David Hargreaves, although it wasn't just David Hargreaves, it's Stephen Hester and Frank Meller. Um, and I've got a copy of Deviants in classrooms, and I don't want to do these guys a disservice because it's an amazing study, but it's one of the most boring books ever. Um, some sociological books, I think, can be quite fun. Uh, Paul Willis can be fun to read, but this it, it's hard work because it's participant observation, uh, well, um, non-participant observations of classrooms and it goes on and on and on but there's literally one page it's page 145 and in that page they mention um the kind of free processes that you'd have in terms of labeling that we might teach from the other textbooks yeah. so speculation yeah. elaboration and stabilization they're all on the same page and i think you could kind of give that to the pupils ask them to read through it or the students rather and identify three key words to describe the free areas that kind of lead to um, the label maybe being fixed or self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you mentioned Louise Archer as well um, earlier. You know, I've got a copy of that book here, the uh, Urban Youth and Schooling, which you can buy for like three pounds on, on Amazon Marketplace or eBay. She actually wrote it with two other people, Simi Hollingworth and uh, Heaven Men Mendick. But the bit on Nike identities, which is probably the bit we all teach, that is no more than two pages in the book. And I think that can be given out as a homework. Kids can go home. And I think having a bit more time with those texts can actually kind of embed it a bit more. The Nike identities one's quite good as well because you've already got the hook with talking about Nike. I think kids can relate to that. Um, another example I've got here is, again, Bowles and Gintis. That is a very dry book, but the correspondence principle is explained very well on two pages. And I think there's sometimes as well the odd thing that can engage children, um, particularly in ethnographic studies. And I, I've got here uh, Mac and Girls, The Making of Men, Masculinity, Sexualities and Schooling. And again, you can buy a copy of this for about a fiver um, on eBay. And where it talks about academic achievers, macho lads, the new entrepreneurs, the real Englishmen, that's a bit longer. That's about five uh, to ten pages long in this book. But are you okay if I use a swear word? Um, I, I, I don't know. I thought, I thought we have not put it as down as explicit, so maybe just say the... Okay, I won't, I won't. I won't use a swear word. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do this with um, learning uh, learning to labour as well. Uh, macho lads, for example, the little head in here, the three Fs, fighting, the word I won't mention, and football. But I remember doing um, English literature a level and the teacher gave us no it's language actually to understand accent and dialects gave us the chapter from train spotting uh, with a swear word about intercities um and we had to read that and i remember being really engaged because it's so edgy and i didn't expect it from a teacher having come from gcse and the kids do read this and i think they are engaged by the fact that you've got an <laughs> academic text that does talk about one it uses swear words one i think some of them probably recognize it from the playground and, and the corridors um, and it's the same with uh, Paul Willis. Um, some of the transcripts he uses, because it's an ethnographic study, as, um, as we all know, some of those can, you, you, uh, you do have to be careful what's said in those because it's not always very nice. But we are teaching an A-level and to give the kids some of the transcripts and to get them to look at those. Willis's theory side is, again, quite dry, but those transcripts can be quite enriching and the kids can read them saying, yes, I, I, I now I understand what he's getting at with these boys, why they are completely, if you like, the antithesis to that middle school 
culture. So I think it's a case of finding the right bits. I mean, even with books that, like I've got Barry Troner's book here on uh, racism and education. That's quite good because he talks about the three S's and that, that's only a paragraph. Um, and even going back with Colin Lacey in Hightown Grammar, um, he does some kind of charts in that that are quite good to pull out and discuss with the kids um, in terms of polarisation. Um, mm. So I, I would never give the kids one of these books to go off and read like you would in philosophy, A-level. Um, but to go through them, and it is, it is a problem, I think, because it takes us a lot of time, but you do find one or two pages that can be really useful. Yes, yeah, so just selecting the bits appropriate for the, for the students. I was thinking more as well, like I'm, I'm thinking about, because I know you've got an interest in pedagogy, and I was thinking about that in in relation to that. What about sort of, adapt, I'm looking at sort of a buzzword now, adaptive teaching, but for some of those texts, like we said, it's just 10 pages long. But if students are, I know we differentiate up and we adapt where possible, but you know for, for some schools the, the the breadth of ability is going to be quite wide and obviously we know sociology is very content heavy um you know just from talking to teachers on our facebook page that it's right to the end of the academic year where we're still teaching lots of the material i suppose it's a bit of a loaded question more than anything but how do we avoid running that risk then of getting too much depth too much depth and not enough breadth but also maybe some of those students that may find some of that text quite hard although you're saying it's yeah a couple of pages how do we avoid them just not doing that like how do we make sure they access that appropriately i, I think for example going back to mac and Gale, that would be a kind of extension homework if they wanted to mm. do it and i'm quite big on homework i don't think homework should be um a homework like that should not be the core homework. You set something shorter, something they can practice, something that, again, you're right, all of them can access. With 10 pages or so, that could be put in a reader that the kids get. They could read that if they are engaged with that idea. They could attempt it. I think with some of these texts, the the Hargreaves book is really hard going. Um, like it is an academic uh, tome. But I think with those two paragraphs, because it's so condensed where he talks about that, I think a lot of the kids can kind of pull out those words. You could do it in two ways as well. You, you could ask them to read through those, um, I think it's like three paragraphs, and, and pull out the three keywords you're looking for, or you could identify the keywords and ask the children to summarize it. Um, other books are actually, I think, written in in a kinder way. I, I think the, the Louise Archer one's quite, easy to follow so i think it's a case of choosing it choosing it well but only having a small a small snippet yeah um, a small yeah. section yeah. Yes. how do you interweave it in lesson time other than obviously looking at just books is there any other ways you interweave uh the classics obviously we've got the enrichment activities we've got the reading the books is there any other ways in which you you do that um to sort of make it um accessible to the students other than just looking at sort of just the textbooks is there anything else that you sort of recommend that teachers are thinking about diversifying their curriculum? I, I, think, I think, first of all, sticking with the books is um, using pictures of the books, because you're, you're completely right. Even if I give the kids a reader to do, a lot of them won't read those texts. Um, I got through my A-levels and probably my undergraduate degree would never actually go into a source text and just reading it from textbooks. So I do like to have pi big pictures of the books and the author. So it's a slide with no information on, uh, it will have a picture of, so Irving Goffman with asylums, 
a picture of the the one of the penguin editions and a picture of Irving Goffman. And I think you're just flagging it up to them. Um, sometimes the covers can be really good as well. I think you can also find clips about some of these books. Stan Cohen, for example, teaching um, about the mods and the rockers and moral panics and folk devils. You've got obviously the classic texts that he wrote, but there's um, quite a few like small documentaries. There's things that teach you um, to, to, um, to you do as well, where you can embed that where other people will talk about them um, as well. So I think that's one way to get them in. And obviously, the other thing I like to do as well is just say that these are books. These are things that we are learning about. They've been written. They've been around for a long time. Um, and even if it's just holding a book in front of the kid saying, you know, that that's what this was, um, I think then they, they're more likely to have a connection to that and remember it from that lesson, uh, which can be quite good as well. The, the other thing I think people can occasionally do, although it is a risk because it can be a bit difficult for some pupils is podcasts obviously there's your podcast but there's other podcasts out there uh which talk about the, the classic texts um i would also say as well thinking aloud um with uh, laurie taylor on the bbc occasionally uh, i'd use that for extension activities as well um there's also quirky ways around it as well i, th I think if you take howard becker uh, the Outsiders as well, that's written in the 1950s. But when I teach Howard Becker, it, it's a bit bizarre, but I stick a, a, a small YouTube clip of him in his jazz band um, just because it's quirky. And I think the kids can then say, like, Howard Becker, the jazz player. Remember we watched him doing jazz? Um, maybe this isn't the best way to do it as well, but I try and talk about the, the people we're talking about in different ways as well. I always tell the kids that Karl Marx, for example, was quite a character. Uh, he lived in lots of different countries. He had to leave different countries. He was followed by lots of secret police. He got arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior on Tottenham Court Road. Um, and hopefully then that will just trigger uh, something else about that author that the kids can remember um, on that. So I think there's a number of different ways of doing that um, and different media you can bring in um, to kind of like, if you like, showcase the books. Yeah, definitely. I know we had a couple of guests on talking about particular uh, classical sociologists and how to, um, to introduce them. They do a, it's called, I think it's the podcast Sociology of Everything. And again, theirs is only like 15, 20 minutes long and it, it only deals with one concept. And I find that really useful. They had one on social facts that I gave my students to think about. Um, and I think 15 minutes, students can access that in quite a nice soundbite. And yeah, like Laurie Taylor and thinking loud, Again, use that for enrichment. And I think like what you alluded to, that the, teaching the classics isn't just about giving those foundations to the students. It's also making them like, I don't know, from what I was sensing, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's giving a purpose to sociology. So it gives them real people with real ideas who are human that, I don't know, sometimes the students think they're just a name, but not like just a name, but with no, no person behind it. Obviously they know there is a person behind it. Um, but I think it gives that sort of, reality to sociology that it's just not this sort of theory that's come out of nowhere um, and, and it keeps it relatively contemporary as well if you use more recent ones so well actually they're still alive or um they work at like that university so like for example i mentioned whenever i teach student ball that when i was at the institute of education i used to <laughs> walk past his door and go <gasps> like that i think like not he had his door closed so i wasn't just like going like that it's his door it's like oh god he's a real person and just like you said adding those little bits to the story um makes it a little bit more real for those students and it's about that engagement to the students so i personally have got on my door 
is the faces of a variety of different sociologists from you know contemporary ones and recent ones and then I've just got an empty box with a question mark saying like you basically to the students just to again keep it real I think like you said you know just holding up the book or having a picture or you know talking about you know jazz bands or whatever it might be it makes it something that's tangible for the students to think about and go oh my gosh that's a real person and I do the same as you asked me I was talking about for some reason I went on a tangent about I was there and I was talking about how like it's probably not the most appropriate thing to be talking about but how he killed his wife but again I know it's a bit of a yeah exactly I just I just mentioned it as a thing just because I wanted them to go well actually they do all these theories but actually they're also people as well um and so I think sometimes it's like, oh, really? Like, oh, like, I don't know. I think they sometimes are quite shocked that they're people with personalities, probably in the same way as they think that teachers don't leave their classrooms potentially. And then when they see you in the supermarket, they're like, oh my gosh, you leave, leave your classroom. I think it's sometimes the same with the, the sociologists they study as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I think there's um, also, with, with the bigger names out there, um you can find a lot of youtube clips like stuart hall's done a lot of things on tv uh paul gilroy has always been interviewed for different things um i've got tony swell uh recently as well in recent years even if it's not him there's plenty of now news clips um about some of his work perhaps his more recent work as well and i, I think we can find a lot of these big names um being interviewed in lots of different ways obviously i think some of the continental sociologists are a bit more difficult because they'll be speaking in French or German. But there's there's so many of them out there being interviewed that I think when if we just wanted to maybe not even get the kids to engage with the text, but see a small clip of them talking about the books, um, that, that's quite easy to find or just something that the kids might remember from seeing them. Mm, definitely. And I know that um, there's another uh, podcast, that's the Sociology Show, and um, he does a lot of interviews with actual sort of obviously live living sociologists about their work and I think they sort of that again is really good because I think that's like another thing we can signpost students to as part of their enrichment as well to so, so sort of wrap it all around and sort of like bring it all to a, a sort of a general sort of point have you got a particular favorite sociologist that you would say yep yeah, that's that's the one if you're not if you're going to spend some time on one sociologist for the students to understand who's your Who's your sort of main sociologist that you think actually if I, you need to go with? Like particularly people maybe like ITTs or ECTs, uh, they may have read it part of their degree actually. To be fair, but is there anyone you think, or even like someone like myself who I can't even remember when I did, did my degree. Well, I do, nineteen ninety eight. But if I was to go back and read a book, who would you recommend uh, if I was to read an original text again? I put the word if, and I'm like, I've got some of them up there, but I'm like, if I looked earlier, and I was like, oh, I've got that, a couple of them. Some of them I given to students and never got back, but that's cool too. Um, but yeah, I've got Toxic Childhood. That's not, that's not probably, I don't know if it's classic or not. I've got, oh, I've got the order of things. That's quite a thick, thick book to to be reading. But is there a go-to? Do you think if like you know, if you've got some summer holiday reading, you're laying on a beach, who would you go to be? I, it's interesting. I think for me, Goffman's um, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life is a book that I think about all the time. Um, reading it, I thought that's so true of me, of everyone I know. Um, when I talk about Goffman with people and kind of wrap it up in a nutshell, they say, yeah, that theory sounds great. I have to be honest, though, it's not the most fun read. Um, but I, I would probably say Goff Goffman is there. 
Uh, Foucault is another one, Discipline and Punish. Um, you, you mentioned the order of things. I, I think Discipline and Punish is a tone people were scared of because it's Foucault. And I think there's a reputation around Foucault saying, you know, I can't, he's this kind of impenetrable French philosopher. I disagree with Discipline and Punish. I, I think, one, it's quite accessible, although you need to have the, I don't know, be brave enough to, to attempt it. Um, I would actually recommend people reading it on a Kindle because I think it, it's easier to read that way. And I think as well, it, it is so relevant now uh, with kind of, again, um, surveillance. The other one, I, I read this for the first time this year, but I, I was really impressed with Anne Oakley's Housewife. Um, and I, I don't know if I should say this uh, on a podcast, but <laughs> I read it quite a lot with my wife. Um, and it, it did, again, make me kind of evaluate my relationship at home and some of the things Anne Oakley was saying um, about um, the nature of housework and the the history of housework, I, I thought was really interesting. I've always used Oakley kind of from the textbooks, uh, but reading that, I realised that the work itself was so much more kind of rich and she talks about industrialization, pre-industrialization. There was so much more in that book than I, I understood uh, from Oakley. So I, I'd say that's a really, really good one as well. So a couple there for a holiday read. I did go for a phase. I think it's more when I it's just like typical as a as a teacher. So obviously did my degree, did lots of reading, did my master, did lots of reading. And then weirdly, a long time ago, I sort of when I first started to teach, I thought I need to have these texts in my house and I need to be able to read them and reference them. So I think we've got the girl like you said, I'm not I feel like we're publicising different brands, but a, a well-known cheap second-hand place I bought something from. And I could just get a big box. It was literally a box. Uh, that big of loads of original texts and I did go through a couple of them and I did read them and then I think the nature of the way that you, you get into teaching learning and then everything else sort of comes on and you think oh but actually as you're talking I'm like do you know what I might I might I might read one of these in the holidays I don't know which one I read Housewives a long long time ago because it just had a really plain front cover doesn't it, it just literally has housework on it um but maybe revisit it, particularly with hindsight, because obviously, you know, think how have things changed? Have they not changed? That might be quite an interesting comparison to contemporary society. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's lots to be done. And, you know, obviously, it's also time to relax in the holidays as well. But um, but yeah, I think sometimes yeah. we, we read things secondhand in the textbooks, which is great, but it is nice to sort of revisit some of the originals and the classics as well um, and I suppose that's role modelling to our students isn't it as, as well and I have said to the students um, I don't know if you've said the same but you know that might be something they have to do as, as part of their degree if they're thinking of taking sociology so um, I'm assuming like I'm no referencing your point that you, you yeah. get a lot from textbooks but um, you know there's uh, increasingly there's sort of a need to go back to those yeah I, I think what you just said there with being role models is important. It's going back to Mr. Strange, my, my, my fantastic teacher from the mid-90s. He, I think, more than anything else, seemed to know these books, and I felt he'd read them. Um, and although I didn't pick them up and read them then, and I don't think I would have understood half of them in, in full, as you were saying earlier, I think we need to be wise in the sections, and even if it's just a paragraph we select. Um, but he certainly got passionate about these books. I was also going to say as well, like, I think one of the problems is where do you get them from? And I've got a massive shelf. I've, I've taken old library shelves from the, the school library here to put them all in. Um, 
again, you can buy them on like secondhand book websites and things like that and find them. The other thing is um, a lot of them now are post copyright and you can get PDFs of a lot of the classics. Um, some of the contemporary classics as well through universities, you can find PDFs as well. So I, I think they're quite easy to find. Mm. Yeah, I think so. I think I know that I know I did have a whole load of them at one point, but I gave them out to students and I think I've got well, the only one that seems to have come back to me is schooling in Capitalist America. That that and Toxic Childhood are the only ones I think I've got left, I think. Oh, and the Communist Manifesto um as well. So that never got so certain books did got taken away, which is fine because that's part of the nature of lending out books, you know, you potentially might not get them back. Um but yes, um, it's interesting, Chad. It may be exciting just talking to you about it. It sort of reminded me about the importance of the classics and maybe reading those original texts as well. Um, uh, just before you go, do you want to make a quick plug to your to your website? Yeah, I, I have a, a website. It's uh, www.mrjoneswhiteboard.blog. Um, it has a number of different things to do with kind of pedagogy, teaching and learning. Um, there are quite a few sociology um uh, blogs there and if i if i may i'm not plugging it because it's old now and there's a lot of um redundant teaching methods in it but i wrote a book on teaching sociology um some time ago and on that i had a chapter on how you can use social theory as pedagogy so what would a marxist pedagogy look like what would a functionist pedagogy look like what was a what would a feminist one a postmodern one look like and i've kind of repurposed some of those chapters um on that blog as well um, okay, I'm interested I'm, by that. I thought that was a conversation in itself. I'm intrigued what a Marxist pedagogy would look like. I thought, could you say that in a nutshell, what that might look like? It's critical pedagogy. I think it's Paolo Ferreira. It's um, teaching children to question, to be critical. And then, um, obviously, the philosophers have only talked about the world. The point is to change it. I'm paraphrasing there. But it it would be that. Um, I actually think the functionist one's quite good as well. I mean, a functionist pedagogy would be very much, we need to teach the core uh, skills and things needed for the division of labour. I think that's very much what schools do anyway. So I, I think it's a fascinating area. Um, and I know we're running out of time, but one of the things I've, I've got a bee in my bonnet about at the moment is education's become probably uh, pedagogy as, as a whole has become a lot more defined now than it ever has been, a lot more evidence informed, which is a good thing. But it's all based on cognitive science and cognitive psychology. I don't have a problem with that. I think there's a lot of evidence and we should use those ideas. But what seems to be missing is the sociological side. Ofsted will talk about cultural capital. They've got no idea where the theoretical element came from. Um, yeah, I've heard politicians talk about social capital, but they've got no idea. Uh, Alex Quidley now talks about vocabulary, but it's all based on Basil Bernstein, really. So I don't know. I, I think there's so much out there that we could be bringing into teacher training that is based on social theory and social research mm. in sociological terms. But unfortunately, the paradigm is cognitive science. Indra, mm. I was talking about this the other day about the importance, and I think going back full circle to what you just said, right right at the beginning about. Uh, Mr. Strange. I was going to say Dr. Strange there, but Mr. Strange. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Strange. You know, and going back to that importance of the teacher-student relationship and how those uh, micro interactions have a really important part. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, because I do. I talk that a lot about sociology and the sociology of education, how important it is. Um, and I've never really thought of it like as a uh, like how you just explained it that 
we've we've changed that shift of, of teaching and learning that's really got me to because i do mention it a lot about you know the stuff that sociologists have said and and all the research has been put behind this the education and, and pedagogy and I, I should remember that's what i did my master's in and I, i've sort of neglected that i've i've been swept with the um the current move in in education and need to get back to my roots on that as well so thank you i feel like that's a conversation itself that's like a different conversation as well so maybe in the future if you don't mind coming back because that's something i'm really really interested about uh personally as well um to sort of revisit that um how sociology can inform pedagogy i think that's definitely something that i'm personally interested in. i'm sure lots of our listeners will be as well so um but thank you for your time enjoy the summer holidays and um i look forward i'm now thinking i might not read a classic as a classic now, I'm thinking I might read a classic on sociology and pedagogy and going back to sort of my days uh, studying that. So yeah, that sounds interesting. Thank you. Thank you for the refresher. No <laughs> worries. Have a, thank you. Thank you for having me. That's all right. Bye-bye. The Sociology Stuff Room is brought to you by tutor to you Sociology. Find us at tutor2u.net forward slash sociology or follow us on Twitter at tutor 2 or Instagram at tutor 2 You can also join our very lively Facebook groups for sociology teachers. See you soon.